Hello everyone, I hope you're keeping well and your week is going well for you. I know we focus a lot on entrepreneurship in these podcasts, but today I wanted to talk to a leader working in palliative care for two reasons. One, I really think people need to understand what palliative care is, as there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And secondly, by raising your awareness of palliative care, Hopefully, it might encourage you and your colleagues to get involved in some fundraising efforts for your local hospice, as it's extremely hard for hospices now to raise those badly needed funds from the public, as money is getting so tight for people. And I think with hybrid working environments creating more of a gap in colleagues having the opportunity to connect on a more deeper level with one another, Getting involved in corporate initiatives like fundraiser for your local hospice, I think really helps both not only the charity, but the company's team morale and team bonding exercises as well. At our company, GK Media, we have had the privilege of producing videos for a number of hospices throughout the entire island of Ireland for the past eight years. We've met so many amazing people, children, young adults and some elders in our community and all of them have had so many positive experiences of palliative care and have told us some great stories. The very first person I met availing of palliative care was a young woman who was a fountain of energy and joy. She availed of palliative care on and off for nearly 10 years. It's not just for someone who is close to the end. It's about improving people's quality of life as soon as they are diagnosed with a life-limiting illness or as soon as they really do need to avail of palliative care. That can be for pain management, for occupational therapy, physio, respite, counselling, spiritual guidance. It really does bring so much support into people's lives. For the past number of years, we've worked with the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care for their annual Palliative Care Week campaign, which takes place every September. And we've got to visit hospices and nursing homes throughout Ireland, producing videos that raise awareness of palliative care. Today, I speak with Karen Charnley, who is Director of the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care, to speak about leadership, following your gut, walking the dogs, but also about managing an organisation made up of different jurisdictions and diversities to ultimately bring healthcare providers, educators and researchers together in an all-inclusive manner to provide a more holistic service of care to people going through a very, very difficult time in their lives. I hope you gain some great insights from this conversation. This is a GK Media Podcast. Karen, thank you so much for joining us on Gary Talks today. You're in Dublin at the moment, so we're chatting virtually, uh, something that I suppose we've all had to deal with a lot over the last couple of years. And we'll get into that shortly as well of how you managed to uh, sustain your campaigns during COVID. But I suppose the first thing I want to talk about is the title of the organization, All Ireland, because unfortunately there isn't many organizations on the island of Ireland that have this whole inclusive approach in coming together. Can you tell me about why it is an All Ireland Institute and how does that work? Back 
back in the noughties was a piece of work done to look at palliative care and how it could be supported going forward. And that piece of work culminated in the view that there should be a palliative care institute And a number of our partners uh, came together and decided to put in a collaborative application to host an all-island application. So there's partners from both jurisdictions, including hospices and universities. So they came together, put in an application and were successful in pulling together funding, uh, including from Atlantic Philanthropies and the Health Research Board and the Public Health Agency in Northern Ireland. So to collaborating together to form the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care. So this took off after the Good Friday Agreement? It did indeed, yes. When the Institute was first set up, established back in 2010, like originally the organisation was to be time limited just for five years up until the end of 2015. And staff members, there was a relatively small team as there still is today. The team was brought on board with the understanding that it would be a time limited organisation. And initially there was 12 partners, member organisations who were involved in guiding the work of the Institute along with other key stakeholders, including funding bodies. Since 2012, we've continued to grow the partner, the member base, and we've now 26 organisations from across the island, including universities, hospices, health and social care organisations, and charities and the public health agency as well. I think really the strength of the organisation is that our role is really to support collaboration and to broaden relations both within jurisdictions but also between jurisdictions. So for example we've got an all-Ireland children's palliative care conference that's been held in Belfast in the Titanic Hotel on the 17th and 18th of November which will be a great opportunity especially in light of Covid and people not being able to meet. It'll be the first opportunity for people working and interested and researchers interested in children's palliative care to get together and to share ideas and updates and it'll be, I'm really looking forward to it. We've gotten to work with you over the years producing videos for Palliative Care Week, which takes place in September every year. And we've gotten to meet so many people who have availed of palliative care over the years, both adults, young people and children. And people often say to me, oh, that must be so hard. And I say, no, it's the complete opposite. It's it's a beautiful experience. It's an honour to be invited into people's homes and hear their story and get to, in their own words, hear them talk about how palliative care has benefited them so much and their families. There's a lot of misconceptions about palliative care. In your own words, Karen, what is palliative care? To me, palliative care is that holistic care that looks to care for people's physical symptoms, their emotional, their spiritual, their social. So it looks to support the person and the family members around them. So it puts the person at the centre of the care. And it's not just for the final weeks of one's illness. I mean, people can avail of palliative care for years. Within your videos, which are always really very well received, and I suppose the personal story, the personal the narrative is almost always the most powerful way of explaining the benefits of palliative care. People who featured within your videos would say that often they're very fearful when they are first referred into services and maybe resistant to going into those, you know, to receiving the supports of those services. 
But there's examples from those videos of people who have access palliative care services, but as their condition, maybe that they no longer need palliative care, or maybe that they, they've accessed respite care, their symptoms have been supported with managing their systems. And so then they've been discharged from palliative care. But they know that the specialist palliative care services will be there for them if the need arises or when the need arises as well. Is there any story that stands out for you where you thought, well, that really shows what palliative care is? To me, there's an example of a gentleman that was cared for by one of our hospice partners. And this gentleman was no longer able to drive his car. He had advanced cancer, even though I suppose palliative care is available for a wide range of conditions. But this man had advanced cancer. And due to his pain, his symptoms, he was no longer able to drive. He was able to access respite care, became an inpatient for a number of weeks, they were able to support him with managing his symptoms. He was discharged back to home. And then because his symptoms burden was reduced, he was able to hire a car for a number of months and was able to spend quality time with his family members. Uh, to me, that kind of shows that palliative rehabilitation and the support that palliative care can make in terms of supporting people to, you know, their quality of life and making the most of the time. There's a video of it and I, I always think back to him and it's just such a great example yeah i think it's so true because we get caught up so much on the hamster wheel and the treadmill of life and i think it's only when something serious happens in our world in our life in our in our circle of family or friends that we really start to appreciate the time with them and start to focus on the quality and maybe there's a learning there for all of us to really focus more on just living life you know even when we're well because I suppose that's the great thing about palliative care is it really improves one's standard of living and gives them that quality of life. And I know hospices out there, they've, they've even had to help family situations where siblings may not have spoken to each other for years and, and help them just reconnect. And that gives the patient so much peace as well. And they really bond and get to make up for that last time for whatever reason that it wasn't there for so many years. There's so many beautiful stories where palliative care has just made such a difference not only for the person who has the life-limiting illness, but just for the gracious circle of family and friends. And the first time I heard of hospice care was when my own grandfather was diagnosed with lung cancer and then there was his secondaries and he had brain cancer and he was in Luke's in Dublin. And I had this vision of a really dark, lonely, sad place. And I never went to Luke so I don't know what it was like this was just the image I conjured up as a teenager but then over the years I've had the the privilege of going into hospices and it's the complete opposite it's bright it's fun there's laughter I know one woman who we met before who had motor neuron disease and like she was from Dublin but her friends used to visit Galway at the weekends and they'd be sitting around the bed drinking glasses of wine and just having the chats (laughs) Yeah, those positive images and the supports it can provide and provide for those friends as well and family members, you know, that's what it's all about as well. And I know you do get support from the hospitals and it's important to maintain that network. But again, the care one receives in a hospice to a hospital because the hospital, they're macro managing, whereas I suppose in a hospice, you have that opportunity to micromanage and to do more individual care. And I mean, if you're walking down 
a ward in a hospital and you saw a patient in there drinking a pint of Guinness, you'd <laughs> you'd call the matron and worry. But in, in a hospice, you know, people are allowed to have a little bit more freedom in the way they want to live and maybe taking up hobbies of doing art or aromatherapy or, you know, little things like that where it's facilitated to allow that space. And I think that's what's been the great thing about a number of the videos that we've had over recent years that obviously you've been involved in, Gary, is that we've been able to maybe shine a light on the aspects of palliative care that people maybe don't always know about. So music therapy and art therapy and, you know, complementary therapy. And last year, I know back in 2021, we highlighted the work of, you know, speech therapists, occupational therapists, physios. So, you know, often maybe when people think palliative care, they obviously the very important work of palliative medicine consultants and their nursing staff who are central to the team within palliative care but it's been very positive that we've been able to highlight those other professionals and the support they provide for family members and again I suppose around pastoral care and chaplaincy and there's you know the supports that are provided for people around spirituality and and those questions can really come to the fore when people are diagnosed living with a life-limiting condition. Yeah, it's interesting you you had mentioned the speech therapy as well because it does remind of us of one of the videos we had made and there was one gentleman who had trouble swallowing and they did exercises with him with the ball under his chin to get him to strengthen the muscles again in his throat so he was then able to eat a dinner properly and you know have that independence and and that's the thing as well about palliative care is it's not kind of like oh we're going to just deal with the situation that we have now and do whatever's there it's actually it's bringing time back again and improving quality and giving people as much independence as possible at this stage to again go back to giving them the best quality of life they can possibly have so it's also it's making improvements it's not just pain control it's it's making improvements yeah rehabilitation re-enablement as as people often talk about is a focus as well Talk to me, because I know we worked with you pre-COVID and then during COVID, and we're still working with you today, which is brilliant, because as I said, we love meeting so many people all over the island of Ireland who avail of the great palliative care that is provided by services out there. But COVID, I mean, it affected everyone differently. But for us, we were going into hospices or people's homes, hearing their stories about palliative care and the benefits that they have witnessed in their own life. Like you run a, a massive campaign every year through various mediums. It's not just videos, it's podcasts, newspaper, radio, TV, and so on. I mean, that was a challenge, wasn't it? Trying to work with people availing of palliative care when everything was on lockdown. And I mean, their health and safety was an absolute must and priority. Yeah, like I suppose with COVID as a whole, we had to really think about well, our work as an organisation and how we can make ourselves as useful as possible to the health sector. Understandably, our clinical partners, our hospices and health and social care trust fully focused on managing and dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. But obviously, we want, you know, we needed to continue raising awareness of palliative care because people still had life-limiting conditions and the, the misunderstandings around palliative care persist. So I suppose we very much looked at well how can we deliver the, the week and obviously working with companies such as yourself like you were able to video people um, online so we had to adapt and use video conferencing facilities to, with which to capture those images and so we had to look at how we could do it in a different way 
while still making an impact. Another area that we looked at was about events. So traditionally, we'd had face-to-face events and face-to-face launch events. And and again, we moved to having online events, online webinars, workshop, and being able to put a calendar of events targeted at both the public. So it was really just turning the campaign to be able to utilize online platforms online that were still available to us. I suppose we were fortunate we were still able to get an impact on social media and media linking in. I suppose with Palliative Care Week, what I always say is the Institute is the engine, you know, we develop the materials, we develop the themes, but it's all very much in collaboration with our member organisations and the wider sector. And without their support and buy-in to supporting palliative care, we it wouldn't continue to grow, it wouldn't be continuing to have an increased impact on raising awareness of the benefits of palliative care. And what platform works best for you to get your message out there to people? Oh, that's a, a good question, Gary. Well, increasingly on social media, we look to use a, a range of platforms. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, videos on YouTube. And we also have our own online gateway to information and resources about palliative care, the palliativehub.com. We use that as a way of getting our messages out throughout the week. The challenge is always how do you reach people you haven't previously reached? So how do you push the message beyond your normal audiences. And that's something we're always working to. And and I suppose media and radio and newspapers are a great way of doing that, you know, that further reaching out. But it's always work in progress with those things as well. I suppose you have to keep adapting and trying different things like you started doing podcasts as well this year. How was that? Oh, I like my colleague, uh, Yvonne McCahill, uh, communications manager. I think we had four podcasts looking at different areas from spirituality to symptom management. So, yeah, again, you know, it's always good to innovate and we're always looking at, well, how do we continue to develop the message and innovate on a year-on-year basis? At the moment, we're actually got a survey out of both our member organisations, our Voices for Care, which is our service user carer, former carer and interested citizen volunteers and also the wider sector just looking for feedback on the campaign and with a view to us starting to develop and think about palliative care week 2023. What are the difficulties that you are facing at the moment? I suppose, like all organisations, there's there's, <laughs> there's so many things that we could do. I think it's keeping clear to our programmes of work and being clear about what we are doing and what you know how we can best support. I suppose one of the most difficult issues hospices are now facing around the island of Ireland is that people don't have as much loose change in their pocket now with the rising costs of everything. And Irish people have always been known to be very charitable. And that was seen a lot as well during COVID, various national campaigns going on and and the millions that were raised. But now hospices are beginning to see the funding isn't on the same level as it was pre-COVID for understandable reasons. How do hospices now deal with that? Traditionally, people are, you know, are very generous and supportive of their local hospices. You know, in Northern Ireland, hospices, approximately 50% of their fundraising is raised from the public. So it's just really highlighting the vital services that they deliver and the strong links they have with local communities. What's the most difficult aspect of this job? We have a small team. 
making the best use of the team in terms of driving forward those much needed areas. And But I think, you know, I'm blessed. There's a great team within the Institute and we've great support from our member organisations and funders. So they make the job a lot easier. You're working with 26 partners and in every partner, there's going to be a variety of personalities. So you're dealing with multiple needs and wants and personalities. You're doing work for adults, young people, children, professionals, learners, carers. How do you manage personally? How does Karen manage everything that's going on without losing the head? (laughs) (laughs) All the roles I've had throughout my career have involved partnership working. So very much if I look back at my CV, they've all involved bringing people together with a view to progressing either projects, programs, initiatives. So I suppose it's kind of part of how I work is that collaborative way of working. You have to be agile at uh, trying to look for where there might be issues or maybe one member organisation might not be happy or there may be some issues so I suppose you get good trying to look around and see well you know what troubleshooting I suppose because I don't don't think any organization would say it makes everyone happy all of the time so but out of that can come innovations as well so if someone has an issue well how do we look to meet those needs as well so I suppose for any organization I think it's important to always focus on innovation and not just keep doing things we've always done yeah, it's interesting because your skill set is leadership and management. So what makes a good leader and what makes a good manager? Thinking about myself, it's, you know, having the clear vision, having the drive, having the energy to deliver upon the plans that you've agreed with your partners as well. Also being able to innovate. I suppose it's more of the skills around you know, financial management, governance, but also project management as well. And, you know, my own background, I've undertaken project management qualifications, which I feel are very useful for supporting the team to deliver across a wide range of programs and projects. It might be flippant of me to say, but it can be easy for a leader to have a drive when they know what they're doing is for a very good cause like the work that you're doing but there must be times where you lose a little bit of the drive how do you keep sustaining the drive i think it's always maybe looking at the maybe the challenges and but often from challenges you're able to get energy and drive forward so i know recently i suppose within the organization there's been a turn, I suppose, like a lot of organisation, there's a turnover of staff members, of team members. And with new members of team coming in, you have to obviously support them with their induction, within their learning about the organisation and learning about their roles. But also you do get, I find, what I've found is great is also you get lots of enthusiasm and innovate, you know, new ideas as well. And then what would you see even looking into the future? as a great success for you? A great success is supposed to be fully financially sustainable, you know, because it's always work in progress. I think that's the nature of the beast, though, for charities and also to have an even longer-term plan, high-level recognition of, of the Institute as an organisation would be would be a positive thing as well. And is there anything then within the organisation that would keep you up at night? like all leaders managers you know there's things you kind of concerned about yeah but no not really no I think it's that for me I'm kind of 
driven and it's that drive to deliver across our busy program of activities, our business plan, kind of how can we do that? That obviously does have an impact. So how do you keep uh, pushing on with the vision and keep delivering the deliverables that you've set out to deliver? They'd be the sometimes maybe might leave me thinking a little. (laughs) And do you have a little method that you use to give yourself that space to get creative and therefore become innovative? What first came to mind is walking the dogs. I have three dogs. So often when I'm walking the dogs, and I try and create space in the diary for having some of these thoughts, but often it is, you know, when you're walking the dog and try and think something, well, unintentionally think something through. and But also, obviously, if there are things working with the team, working with the programme managers to, well, how do we, and seeking their support and their ideas for how we solve any issues. That's interesting because I was with a group recently and I was talking about different ideas that I have for the business, but not sure exactly what direction to go in. And they were saying, no, you need to literally write like deep think or something in your diary and take the time out, like block that time out in your diary to just go off and have a think. And they said even sometimes you could be there for two hours and nothing comes to your head. And when you get back in the car to drive to work or to drive home, then the idea suddenly comes. And I never thought of that uh, as, a, as a way of taking or allowing yourself to have the space to think. And it's interesting to hear that that's what you do yourself as well. I just want to touch on self-belief. For you, where have you developed your self-belief? Was there a moment in your life where you were given the confidence to say, I am Karen, I can do great things? Like, wh- Was there a particular moment where you really developed your self-belief? There was one, and I won't say the time period, there was one instance where I went for career coaching. I think it was career coaching. And there was an issue in where I was working and I was talking about it. And coach said to me, she said, the problem is you're putting your head down. You're keeping your head down. And she said, it doesn't suit you at all. Uh, she said, I can see, she said, you're going to have to, not getting, it wasn't that I wasn't involved, but she said, maybe, you know, you're going to have to put your, you know, put your head up and engage in some of those issues and maybe be more confident about what you're saying. And so I did, actually, a colleague following that laughed at me, well, like laughed with me, because she said it was like, you came back the day after and it was like, hello, Karen's in the building. I just, not in an abrasive way, because that wouldn't be my style. I'm someone who works with people. I suppose that comes with experience as well. And, And I think, especially in recent years, just having that confidence but also having a I always say it's that gut reaction it's that in your gut whether something sits right with your gut and I can literally feel it sometimes when I'm thinking about things and oh no that doesn't feel right and I can't eat it's like a physical no I no we need to rethink that or but it is a physical thing in a way so for me anyway you know that trusting of my gut and I have got better about that over recent years you know not second guessing myself but for any leader it's always work in progress and I suppose the other thing for me is like looking at well how do I continue to develop and learn new skills and actually doing a a post-grad course out of work now again to learn more skills about a certain area so it's how do you continue to develop you can never just what is it? Rest on your laurels. So that's the phrase, isn't it? That's brilliant. Fair play to you and best of luck with, with the postgrad. Finally, Karen, I know you work with universities, hospices, health and social care organisations, charities and 
individuals as well and all that. But what do you think is the biggest challenge that people need to be aware of in business at the moment? Well, I suppose the economic uncertainty would be the biggest worry, challenge. Obviously, we're all looking at social media and media and the different things around financial institutions or interest rates increasing, energy costs increasing. Like there are obviously costs increasing. I suppose in a way we've been maybe sheltered a little from some of those impacts. They would be the biggest concern be for us. I suppose we're relying on, you know, our member organisations and obviously any hit to their finances could be a hit to our finances and also public funding as well through the HSC. Very grateful, by the way, and the public health agency from the departments of health. So anything that impacts their funding. So I suppose just being like we're always very, I'm always very focused on the finances and looking to achieve value for money and operating in a efficient way but I suppose the storm clouds would be the thing that would worry me I think the other area that is a tricky area is you know there's so much turnover in the jobs market at the moment and I think obviously I hope the storm clouds you know you'd be worried that the storm clouds could affect some of that buoyancy in that market but it it is an issue as I've mentioned we've had a number of new team members join which have been very positive but at the same time, it's great to have the mix of longer standing and, and new colleagues within the team. So that turnover, and I believe in some organisations, that's really pressing. With And you lose all that corporate knowledge, you lose all that, and you then have to go to recruit. So we've been blessed, we've recruited well, but I never take it for granted, you know, with this buoyant job market. Yeah, we probably thought COVID was the worst of it. But it's, as someone said to me during COVID, the aftermath will probably be the biggest. So. We're an adaptable species. We just got to keep adapting and being resilient. And I think that's one thing that COVID really taught everyone is that we can adapt. We had a programme, business plan for the year, and we really had to turn that on its head. We did 26 webinars for nursing homes, intellectual disability services, learning disability services, children's palliative care. We did one for that as well. So we were able to adapt and kind of move what team members were planning to do. So I can remember early on in the pandemic thinking, you know, how do we keep ourselves relevant? We also had online resources that we made available. So during that early stages is how are we going to keep ourselves relevant? How are we going to support a sector which has really had to put its head down? Like people who were involved in but had like clinical and research posts Often, they, you know, they were fully brought back into much needed clinical roles. So everyone was very heads down. So it was, but we were able to innovate. And I think, I think that's what COVID's taught everyone that we you can adapt and change services. And there's benefits to that. And I know now, obviously, I suppose in the, for example, in the hospices, they're able to return to some daycare services and that kind of thing. But maybe it's in a slightly different model than they previously delivered because of the learnings from all of that. Well, I learned a lot today. So thank you, Karen, for joining us on Gary Talks. Best of luck with your postgrad and continued success at the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care. Great. Thank you very much, Gary. Pleasure as always. Thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of Gary Talks. We are slowly but surely climbing our way up on the charts now, and it's all because of you supporting the podcast and spreading the word about the podcast. And it encourages us to keep going in having these conversations and bringing this content to you. So please do continue to spread the word about the show. And don't forget, you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram. 
I'll be back again on Friday with another episode of Business Bites. So hopefully that'll give you something further to think about. But until I talk to you then, thank you for listening and take care. Thank you.